You're listening to a 3CR podcast of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. Radio MMT respectfully acknowledges the traditional custodians of the land from which we are broadcasting, the Wurundjeri people, and we are broadcasting to the Kulin Nations. Our focus is economics, that is, how stuff is produced and distributed. We recognise that for many tens of thousands of years, First Nations people's connection to country successfully embodied the world's oldest continuous economy, which was catastrophically disrupted by genocide and displacement. We acknowledge that we have much to learn to reshape our current extractive and exploitive system to achieve sustainable prosperity for everyone. Radio MMT. Economics for the rest of us with Anne and Kev. Radio MMT. Looking at the world through the lens of modern monetary theory. Radio MMT. Macroeconomics for a well-being economy. Macroeconomics? Like, isn't that incredibly boring? No, Kevin, it's incredibly interesting. It's all about who gets what and why. Who gets what and why? Okay, I'm in. Radio MMT at gmail.com. Incredibly interesting macroeconomics for the rest of us. Welcome to Radio MMT, and how are you doing today? Hey, Kevin, and hello to our lovely listener. I'm imagining you as Larry or Larissa, or perhaps you're both or neither. Or an in-betweener. Well, today, Kevin, we will be hearing the first part of a two-part interview with economist Lachlan Kerwood McCall. And Lachlan is a proponent and student of modern monetary theory, the kind of economics that you and I like to use on Radio MMT. Yep. And we had such a long and interesting chat with Lachlan, as prompted by his involvement with the ACTU, the peak body for trade unions in Australia. And it was prompted by his involvement with the ACTU submission to the review of the Reserve Bank of Australia, which is Australia's central bank. It ended up being such a long conversation that we'll air it over two episodes of Radio MMT. And I wanted to speak with Lachlan because I was very curious to learn what might an MMT-friendly economist who is affiliated with the trade union movement What might he have to say about the workings of the central bank? And that's because we do live in interesting times when we need to rethink that neoliberal shape of our public institutions, particularly the ones that are running the economy, like the central bank. Yeah, no, the thing I liked about speaking about uh, Lachlan, uh, Anne, was that we talk about a lot of this stuff and it's kind of all theoretical Mm -hmm. and uh, to see it applied in the real world with somebody who actually is working in the environment of policy and advice to government and to the ACTU and uh, putting in the submissions, etc., it kind of snaps you out of that um, that, that hypothetical mode and, and, and into reality. <laughs> and you go, wow, this is actually real. This is affecting... They are using these ideas. Yeah, which is yeah. A, a bit exciting. And and Lachlan's a very um, passionate person. Yes. So it's lovely, lovely to hear him talk about it. Yes, it was a great conversation. And I don't know if you know this, Kevin, but gay people do not go straight ahead. They move gaily forward. So let's head gaily forward into our conversation with Lachlan Kerwood-McCall. 
Today, I am so pleased to welcome to the show Lachlan McCall. Welcome to Radio MMT, Lachlan. Thank you so much. Um, thanks for having me. I, I should add, actually, it's, it's technically now um, uh, Lachlan Kerwood McCall. I got married about 12 months ago. So it's Lachlan Kerwood McCall. Yes. Congratulations, by Congratulations. the way. Congratulations. Thank you. So I understand that you are an economist by training and profession, and I was just mm -hmm. wondering if you could tell us something about your journey through an education in economics and even what part modern monetary theory might play in your thinking about the macro economy. I uh, always wanted to um, study economics from high school onwards, and for a long time there were always sort of various confounding factors that got in the way. I mean, um, I studied uh, a BA, um, majoring in politics. I really wanted to do economics. Um, but at the time, um, you had to have a certain level of year 12 maths in order to do economics. So I, I didn't get to study it as an undergraduate student. Um, and in hindsight, that was probably a, a good thing. It mm. meant that um, I didn't have neoclassical economics deeply ingrained in me when I first uh, came across uh, more heterodox ideas. Mm. For a long time, I, I was um, always interested in um, politics. That was really sort of my focus. I finished off my BA in um, politics, international studies, went on to do uh, a master's in international relations, um, got involved in the young labor scene for my sins. It was a lot of fun, actually. Um, in about 2016, I uh, was offered a, a job in the graduate program at the Department of Industry in Canberra. Worked there um, for about uh, six and a half years, um, met my now husband on the way, and basically sort of moved around a couple of departments in that time. So I moved from Department of Industry to Department of Prime Minister and Cabinet, worked in the Economic Division. At that stage, I was kind of like an economist by osmosis, <laughs> but I was mostly working on qualitative economic policy. There wasn't a huge requirement in various roles that I had for um, a lot of quantitative modelling. Mm. Um, and it was actually as part of the graduate program at the Department of Industry, I did a uh, graduate certificate in economics uh, at the University of Canberra. So I finally got to start actually studying economics formally and getting some formal qualifications. Mm. When you're working for the Department of Prime Minister, is that the, the PMO that you're working for? No, no, no. So the Department of Prime Minister and Cabinet it sits within the Australian Public Service. It's not the PMO. It's not the Prime Minister's office. Right. Department of Prime Minister and Cabinet or PM&C is it's a bit of an interesting beast. I suppose it would be fair to say that for every other federal government department, there's a department and then there has to be a minister or ministers responsible, as in there's a policy area, there's a portfolio, there's a minister created to, to tend to the department. But in the case of PM&C, it's a department created to work to the minister, in this case, the prime minister. It's uh, definitely nonpartisan. A lot of people do think that that's, they, they assume that that's a party political role, but um, PMNC's role essentially is it provides a lot of logistical support to the Prime Minister and Cabinet. So pretty much every department in the Australian Public Service has a sort of um, a mirror, if you will, um, a corresponding unit within PMNC. And I was working in the Economic Division at the time. And uh, and who was Prime Minister while you were working there? Um, Turnbull. I actually got lucky. I got the least bad of the three <laughs> Tory Prime Ministers. <laughs> I actually had a really weird um, knack. It was pure, pure luck. I, I always had a knack for moving into or out of a department just before a really bad minister or a really bad secretary got appointed. Parallel to all this, you're studying economics. Yes. Uh, so around um, mid-2018, um, I'm involved in the uh, Australian Labor Party. I'm involved in the ACT branch. And I go along to a meeting of the ACT Labor Economic Policy Committee and um, someone invited our mutual friend Stephen Hale 
now Professor of Economics at Torrens University, at the time a lecturer in economics at uh, Adelaide University, someone on the committee invited Stephen um, along to give a talk on modern monetary theory. And of course, it was you know, pretty mind-blowing. Um, I thought it was absolutely fascinating. It turned a lot of my understanding of economics on its head. By this point, I had most of a graduate certificate in economics under my belt. And by this point, I'd been working, I guess, as a kind of pseudo-economist. So I thought I knew enough at that stage about economics. And by economics, of course, at the time I meant orthodox um, economics. Mm -hmm. Anyway, so I come across um, MMT meeting Stephen Hale. And the question that I kept coming back to is, how how has no one else noticed this? If, Mm. if, if, If the federal government spends by creating money and it deletes money when it taxes... How is it that the um, mainstream economics profession has not noticed this? So, of course, one of the first things I did was immediately go to my colleagues, uh, economists in PMNC. I was going to say, how were they all reacting? <laughs> well, it's, it was interesting. It was, um, I mean, primarily it was a pretty dismissive um, response. Of course, one of the advantages of living in Canberra is it's quite easy to sort of reach out to um, academic economists at the Australian National University and University of Canberra. So I'd reach out to various experts and I'd ask, what, what do you think? They'd normally say um, one of two things. They'd say, um, well, this proposal to start printing money, that's a terrible idea because X. And I'd say, well, hang on, hang on. Um, I might only be a very junior at this stage, pseudo-economist. I've only got a grad certificate under my belt, but even I can tell that that's not what the MMT academics are saying. Mm. There's no proposal to start printing money. They're, they're saying that, mm-hmm. that the federal government already does spend by creating money and that it always has. They're making a descriptive claim, not a, they're not putting forward a policy proposal. And normally when you correct them, you then get a second response, which was essentially just to sort of obfuscate. And essentially the, the conversation was sort of go nowhere. They had the same initial reaction that I did, which is sort of a mixture of shock and I think in their case, slight irritation. Like they just didn't want to, I think they just didn't want to go there, to be perfectly honest. It opens too big a can of worms. And I guess that's the thing. It's interesting to see uh, how people in the profession who have subscribed to the orthodoxy mm. react when that orthodoxy is challenged. They're not, they're not reacting by debunking it with facts. They're just blocking it and, and walking away. Essentially, yeah. Interestingly enough, it's actually uh, some of the young uh, orthodox economists who are most um, visceral in their, their hatred of MMT. And it, it's really interesting. I think it's because there is a sort of sunk cost fallacy here. No one wants to be told that certain fundamental premises that they spent years studying, not just as undergraduate students, but then as master's students, PhD students, you know, they've worked incredibly hard to get into, in inverted commas, top PhD programs in the world. They've gone into work either in academia at top universities or at Treasury, the Reserve Bank, or Department of Finance, whatever it might be, um, the last thing they they want to psychologically countenance is the possibility that what they've been taught and what they've invested several years and you know, decades of their life into, that there are some fundamentally flawed premises. Uh, it creates too much cognitive dissonance. And I think it's especially the case for uh, younger orthodox economists, early career um, lecturers and things like that, because they've, they've, of course, just come out of an incredibly long and gruelling process of studying a PhD. Mm. And to find out that actually orthodox macroeconomists don't know, I won't swear, they know stuff all... Shit is the word you're asking for, <laughs> I think. They don't know shit. <clears throat> yes, to, to have just come out of, say, several gruelling years of mm. 
PhD and then postdoc and then scrambling to get into a fairly insecure job as a lecturer at a top university, to then be, be told that orthodox macro doesn't know about the basics of fiscal and monetary operations is, is of course, a rather horrible thought. Mm. As non-economists, we often say it on the show, but it's good to have that verified by somebody who knows a little bit. So there you were with your peer group essentially saying, no, this modern monetary theory thing isn't worth pursuing, but you did. So tell us about why you think you were motivated in that way and, and where you went with it. Um, let me put it this way. Um, you know, I grew up a closeted uh, queer person and as a person on the um, autism spectrum with ADHD, like not fitting in um, was kind of something that was very familiar to me. The thought of um, not fitting into the orthodox dominant paradigm wasn't quite as perhaps terrifying for me as it is for many other economists because I was like, well, I'm sort of used to it. Mm. And I know that there are um, uh, LGBT mainstream economists who, who loathe MMT, mm-hmm. but I do like the way Stephen Hale describes his MMT journey where he says, um, like me, he'd started out in mainstream macro. He'd done his master's at the London School of Economics. He had a job training central bankers, and then he'd started to um, have his doubts about orthodox macro, and then the global financial crisis happens, and he uses the term, that's when he sort of came out as an MMT economist. And I do actually like the analogy because I think that's actually very much the case. Mm. I know some um, very intelligent academic economists at a couple of mainstream universities around Australia who have had long and, and very interesting discussions about MMT, and they understand a lot of um, post-Keynesian economics, they're familiar with the post-Keynesian literature, um, they understand endogenous money, for instance, they understand that so-called mainstream orthodox macroeconomics, the models of, uh, of money and banking and how the financial system works um, that you find in most macro textbooks are just totally bizarre, mm. totally in- incorrect, and are not actually used by anyone in the central banking <laughs> community. Um, and at one stage I sort of asked them, I said, well, so what, what are your colleagues at, at blank university what do they think about your, your apparent um, open-mindedness to heterodox idea into the post-Keynesian literature? And um, the response they, they gave I thought was quite telling. They said, they don't know. They're not aware of my, my openness to heterodox economics. Only my closest friends and associates are aware of it. And I thought it does actually sound, sound like being a queer person in in the civil service during the fifties and sixties, you know, when, um, you, you have to, you have to hide this, these weird thoughts that you have. You'd have to keep it to your, yes. You, only my closest, it was, it was like listening to a 1950s, you know, a Hollywood movie star, you know, to rock Hudson or someone, <laughs> only my closest friends and associates. know. If the truth had come out, that would have been the end of his career. The rock was an icon. He was by far the biggest star in Hollywood. Not only did women say, that's the man I want to marry, many men said, that's the man I'd like to be. Well, there are some men who just, uh, uh, they're very devoted to their mothers. You know, the type that likes to uh, collect cooking recipes or exchange bits of gossip. What a vicious thing to say. I wanted to love her, but I was in love with someone else couldn't help that. He had more than one world. He had the studio world. He had this gay world. If the truth had come out, that would have been the end of his career. It's as simple as that. I'm an inspector. What would you like to inspect? You. I mean, uh, we've received a complaint about you. Oh, well, I 
I've never had any complaints before. Creating a certain level of unemployment deliberately and, and then allowing politicians and governments to blame the unemployed and shame the unemployed for the fact of their unemployment. Somehow that little cult helped you discover the truth about me. You. Hiding in closets isn't going to cure you. Wasn't uh, John Maynard Keynes, uh, apart from being a heterodox um, uh, economist of some sorts, his his um, uh, sexual orientation was was uh, somewhat open-minded as well, I believe. I guess you would have said he was gay when he was involved in the um, the Bloomsbury group, but he met, um, I can't remember the name of his wife. Um, Lydia but he met, Lopakova. Um, yes, that's it. I think she was a ballerina through the Bloomsbury Circle, which is a sort of very bohemian group of um, um, scholars and artists and academics based out of Cambridge University. Um, very progressive and very um, open-minded. And apparently up until the point where he met his wife, he was well-known and accepted as, as being gay. But then he, he met his wife and apparently he was genuinely fell in love with her. Mm. I guess without knowing what labels he affixed to himself, I guess the best we can say is that John Maynard Keynes was a flaming, fabulous bisexual. <laughs> Around it was it would have been about ten years ago. It was at the height of the Tea Party movement in the United States. Niall Ferguson, a professor of history at Harvard, a prominent sort of conservative um, public intellectual and academic, he, he posited, um, well, the reason Keynes didn't care about the uh, large public debt accruing from running fiscal deficits to stimulate the economy is, is because Keynes was gay and didn't have any kids and therefore didn't have any grandkids to worry about with the national debt, which goes to show even people with doctorates from mm. Oxford and tenure at Harvard can say some incredibly stupid things. <laughs> Interesting. Oh, there you go. There you go. A cross-section with economics and uh, gender and sex politics. There you go. You're listening to 3CR 855 AM on digital and on the internet, www.3cr.org.au. You know, Lachlan mentioned there this this thing called endogenous money, uh, which is one of these ideas floating around in heterodox economics. And as far as I can tell, endogenous means that it originates within a system as opposed to coming from outside a system. And so I think endogenous money is a place where uh, there's one of these fundamental disagreements uh, between the economists that we follow, the heterodox economists, and the orthodox or mainstream economists. And what they seem to be arguing about is what determines the supply of money in the economy. Does money come from outside or does money come from within? Uh, It's pretty fundamental to your understanding of how an economy works to get that understanding correct in the first place mm. and uh, I, I've got to say when I first started doing this I'm, I'm running up against words I'm, I'm just a simple handyman and <laughs> and, and uh, you're a simple fellow Kevin with simple needs and wants <laughs> and a fairly simple mind and so so endogenous and exogenous mm-hmm. these words are being flung at me and I'm sort of going huh um, so endogenous is from within, mm-hmm. from within the system, and exogenous is coming in from the outside of the system. Where does money come from? <laughs> uh, so these words, um, words are good, <laughs> but you've got to know what the word, word yeah. means. And so, yeah, I remember I first came across it very early on in coming across MMT, and I thought, oh no, I'm never going to understand this stuff. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I keep a little cheat sheet 
in my textbook. Oh, okay. So when I come across a word that I don't know, I write it down, I give the meaning next to it, and every time I come across that word, it reinforces it, and then eventually I end up understanding what it means. Little tip for anybody out there. This wouldn't be the textbook that we have on our webpage at 3cr.org.au forward slash radio MMT. It's, it's Macroeconomics by Randall, Ray and Mitchell, uh, and it's written by bloody academics who speak in <laughs> academic language. But if you persevere and use your cheat sheet, you can actually get through this stuff. That's Kevin's tip for the day. So in the next uh, segment we have with Lachlan, he talks about a lot of this monetary versus uh, fiscal battle. So let's get back to our conversation with Lachlan. The current Australian Labor government recently conducted a review of Australia's central bank, which is the Reserve Bank of Australia, otherwise known as the RBA. And on the 20th of April 2023, the Treasurer Jim Chalmers released the final report from this review. And in response to that report, MMT economist Professor Bill Mitchell, he wrote an entry in his blog titled RBA Review Report Ignores the Real Questions and Proposes to Entrench the Failed Groupthink. And a few weeks later, Bill Mitchell wrote another blog entry titled RBA Loses the Plot. Treasurer should use powers under the Act to suspend the RBA Board's decision-making discretion. And Bill wrote that second piece in response to the RBA adding an 11th interest rate increase at a time when we were seeing inflation falling. Mm -hmm. Listeners can find Bill's article simply by Googling Bill Mitchell blog. Uh, But Lachlan, I was wondering why do you suppose Bill is so scathing about both the review process of the RBA and the RBA itself? Um, I mean, where do you start really? (laughs) Um, I should say as a disclaimer up front, I was a senior economist at the ACTU, at the Australian Council of Trade Unions, for the last um, uh, 12 months. I've just recently um, left to take a break before I go back to uni full time. So I wrote the bulk of the ACTU submission into the RBA review. I've got a, the general gist of what the um, review reporters said, um, and I've read a bit of what Bill has been saying since. Uh-huh. But to be frank, I mean... In order to be disappointed by something, I think you actually have to have higher expectations. You have to have unmet expectations of it. I didn't think this review was going to really do very much. I also thought that the um, orthodox economists were making a characteristic mistake in thinking that the review would be the be-all and end-all, that the review could solve all of our problems. I mean, the fundamental problems in Australian macroeconomic policy are not monetary policy mistakes. Although the RBA is, is inadvertently trying very hard to disavow us of that notion with this latest cycle of interest rate hikes. Mm. Can we just remind our listeners that when we're talking about monetary policy, we're talking about the central bank raising and lowering interest rates. Yes. And that sits alongside something called fiscal policy, which is the government or the parliament doing its taxing and spending, and that's how our national economy is managed. Yes. So the fundamental problem is that um, we have a system in place called monetary policy dominance, which is essentially one where the goals of keeping inflation low and stable, so preventing major fluctuations in in the price level across the board, um, as well as delivering full employment. There are various definitions of full employment. Of course, progressives define it 
full employment as when everyone who wants a job can get one and everyone can get as many hours of work as they want. That seems like an obvious definition to me. It does. It does. (laughs) And that was the original definition of full employment. That was Keynes's definition of full employment. Mm. Um, It was used by the uh, Curtin Labor government in the 1945 full employment white paper. It was the definition understood by Franklin Roosevelt and his administration in the United States. But among orthodox economists, full employment is defined as the lowest level of unemployment you can get before inflation begins to accelerate. They use the the rather horrible acronym NAIRU, N-A-I-R-U, or Non-Accelerating Inflation Rate of Unemployment. That's how they define full employment, which I think is just ridiculous. It's Mm. it's it's also lazy. I think it's a, it's cruel. It's cruel. It's 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 evil. It's 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 a form of economic gaslighting, mm. creating a certain level of unemployment deliberately, and, and then allowing politicians and governments to blame the unemployed and shame the unemployed for the fact of their unemployment, which is in fact has has been imposed on them as a deliberate design feature of macro policy. But the era of, of monetary policy dominance, which has really been in place since the late seventies, essentially says that you can. Um, control inflation and you can deliver full employment however you define it through independent central banks managing interest rates alone. That is to say there is no real role for fiscal policy. There's no real role for the federal budget in delivering low inflation and full employment and that essentially fiscal policy just needs to get out of the way of monetary policy. Mm. Now the fundamental problem I think that we've got the Reserve Bank is actually a fundamental problem with orthodox macroeconomics, which is that they are still wedded to the idea of monetary policy dominance. They think that a central bank, regardless of how independent it is, a central bank using interest rates can fine-tune the economy. And unorthodox economists, heterodox economists, whether it's modern monetary theorists or post-Keynesians, institutionalists, other heterodox economists, think that that's nonsense. And I think there's some pretty compelling evidence for that over the last decade, especially from 2016 onwards, Australian interest rates were at record lows. Well, really until until interest rates started rising again last year, which I should add, um, the cycle of hikes, of rate hikes that began in, I think, April last year, is the most aggressive cycle of monetary policy tightening since 1991. This is the most aggressive cycle of monetary policy tightening in my lifetime. In fact, from I think about 2018 onwards, um, interest rates have been at or mostly below 2%. And in all that time, in the, the four years pre-pandemic, unemployment was way too high. And unemployment has been way too high since 1975, I should add. But certainly, I think the, the second half of the last decade is really when the shit began to hit the fan. And unfortunately, orthodox economists, um, they did everything but acknowledge the smell, if you know <laughs> what I mean. The inflation was too low. It was below the target ban. The RBA has a ban to get inflation between 2 to 3%. We don't want inflation to be too high because that means an unsustainable cost of living. But we also don't want inflation to be too low. The reason being that we generally judge that to be a sign that the economy is too weak, mm. that the economy isn't growing strongly enough. So it's a case of we want a certain amount of growth. I've kind of described this before on the show as putting like a forward lean on the economy yes. without going too far, without it uh screaming out of control. Uh, yes. We don't want it to be static, which is no growth, and we don't want it to be in negative territory. We just want a slight forward lean on it. That's that's how I understand it. Exactly. And of course, there, there's the argument from the ecological economists that we should be looking beyond economic growth. Mm-hmm. But just putting that to one side, the idea is that the Reserve Bank, by adjusting interest rates alone, can basically 
fine-tune the economy and put it in the Goldilocks zone, the Goldilocks zone where inflation is not too hot, not too cold, unemployment is just right. Well, for the four years before the pandemic, poor old Phil Lowe, <laughs> he's been governor of the Reserve Bank since 2016. I don't think he's ever actually been able to get inflation within that 2 to 3%. Mm. Now, the orthodox economists say that that's because the RBA kept interest rates too high for too long. Um, and to that, I sort of say, what the hell are you smoking? <laughs> Throughout the entirety of that period, Australian interest rates were at record lows, mm. record lows. For half of that period from 2018 onwards, interest rates were below 2%. The idea that if you just shaved another few basis points, you know, if it was just 0.5%, that would have worked. And there is some research from um, Andrew Lee and uh, Zach Gross from uh, Monash University. They put out a paper about a year ago or so using their model, which is a fairly neoliberal, neoclassical model. They show that if the RBA had cut interest rates further prior to the pandemic, an additional 200,000 jobs would have been created. Um, now, I'm a little bit sceptical about that, but certainly that it feeds into the, um, the argument. But, you know, we're not quite sure if that really would have had much of an effect if they'd cut them further. But let's just concede that argument. But what's pretty clear to us modern monetary theorists is the problem is the government of the day kept cutting the budget deficit. Fiscal policy was squeezing the economy way too tight. And one of the main arguments that the ACTU made in a submission to the RBA review is you've kind of got to go back to the fundamentals. And, and the fundamental problem is actually thinking that the RBA can solve the problem on its own. That's the fundamental problem. The, the, the neoliberal agenda is to keep government out of the economy uh, and let the private sector run it as much as possible. So this whole concept that the RBA, monetary policy, is the only way to control these important economic dynamics like inflation and, and employment, et cetera, mm. is basically we're, we're looking at a, a neoliberal model. Absolutely. So for them to have fiscal policy involved in, in these areas is inviting the government into to start controlling things, which is exactly what they don't want. Am I being a bit paranoid here or does that sound reasonably accurate? No, that's, that's not, um, not paranoid at all. I mean... Um orthodox economics, whether it's micro or macro, essentially says that markets, if left to their own devices, are broadly self-regulating, except in a few very limited and defined circumstances of market failure. Governments, if they intervene, will make things worse, except in very limited circumstances where the market has failed. It's, it's, not, it's not a conspiracy. It's what's stated quite explicitly in Econ 101 textbooks. So the situation with this review is that we are blaming the RBA, particularly poor old Phil Lowe, who poor old Phil Lowe gets a million or so a year to be mm. the governor. Comrade um, Phil. Rather than blaming the, uh, the bad economic models that they're using and the review isn't even addressing that fact. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, and I don't think the review was ever going to do that because that involves challenging too many fundamentals, too many prior assumptions, um, the only way you were going to get a review that was actually going to properly diagnose both how the Reserve Bank has misused monetary policy, but also get to the, the, the real core of the issue is that interest rate policy alone can't actually deliver what it's supposed to. Like, it's not just that the RBA has used its powers poorly, it's also that the RBA actually doesn't have the ability to stimulate an economy that is being crushed by fiscal austerity, nor does it have the ability to deal with inflation that's driven by, let's say, high global oil prices due to the war in Ukraine. The only way the RBA review could have really delivered um, some really substantial reformers if you'd had people like Bill Mitchell during the review, and the government was never going to go with that. 
Radio MMT on 3CR between 5.30 and 6.30pm the second and fourth Friday of each month. Radio MMT. If you like our show, subscribe to 3cr.org.au and mention Radio MMT. And you can find us through your favourite podcaster and give us lots of stars. And or give us a like on Facebook, Twitter or YouTube. Your support really helps. Because if you're not liked on social media, you don't exist. (laughs) There are many ways that you can keep up to date with 3CR news, events and programs. The 3CR website is a great spot to catch all your shows via audio on demand or scroll through our range of podcasts. It's also where you can sign up to our monthly newsletter, buy yourself a new t-shirt, or check out archival audio from past broadcasts. Of course, we're also on Twitter, at 3CR, and Instagram, at 3CR Melbourne. But don't forget our mighty AM band. Catch us anytime on 855am. Keep in touch, 3cr.org.au. So Lachlan was describing how this goal of macroeconomics is to keep inflation low and steady and to keep unemployment low. And I often feel like this is what could be the holy grail of macroeconomics. Yeah. The the Reserve Bank's charter, they have three three planks that they're supposed to look after. So there's employment. They call it full employment. We disagree on the definition of full employment but the first thing is full employment the second thing is to keep the inflation within the target range of between two and three percent and the third thing is uh, to create a stable economy with macro prudential mac- macro prudential policy that's a mouthful <laughs> and and that's uh something that Lachlan talks about in the next segment of the uh the interview we did with him let's have a listen so you were mentioning the need to use fiscal policy as well as monetary policy to manage the macro economy. Mm. And I did notice that the ACTU submission to the RBA review did call for the establishment of a macroeconomic coordination committee, which would deliver coordination across government. So I was just wondering who and what are you wanting to coordinate here? And can you give us an example of why that would be important? Sure. Um, So if you look at, say, the pre-pandemic phase, and to an extent during the pandemic as well, we've now got a situation where everyone's saying it was all the RBA's fault. You've now got a lot of economists saying inflation was clearly too low, it was below the RBA target, unemployment was too high, and it's the RBA's fault because keeping interest rates at 2% for all those years was, was too high. The RBA clearly made mistakes. But the fundamental problems in macroeconomic policy prior to the pandemic really had nothing to do with the RBA at all. The fundamental problems were that uh, the government kept fiscal policy too tight. That is, it kept cutting the deficit, strangling the economy, strangling growth, resulting in high unemployment and too low inflation. And at the same time, APRA, the Australian Prudential Regulatory Authority, kept macroprudential policy too loose. Oh, can you tell us what that is? So macroprudential policy is essentially regulatory policy. It's regulation attached to uh, borrowing and lending, credit creation, credit quality in the banking system, 
that's essentially designed to help stabilise the financial market and the macro economy in general. So, for instance, it's a, a loan-to-value ratios, it's regulatory requirements um, about the amount of collateral you need to have on hand if you want to borrow. Mm-hmm. And this is in the purview of APRA? Yes. Okay, so now we've got three areas so of So we've now got three. And in most central banks around um, um, wealthy economies generally control both monetary policy and macroprudential policy. So, for example, the US Federal Reserve, the American equivalent of the RBA, they run both interest rate policy, monetary policy, and they also run macroprudential policy. So regulations around borrowing and credit in 1998 as a result of the Wallace inquiry into the financial system. In Australia, we split that function away from the RBA. We mm. took a lot of it away from the RBA and gave it to APRA, to a separate body. Now, of the two policy tools, the one that's more effective is actually macroprudential policy rather than monetary policy. In other words, controlling the quality of credit rather than Mm. controlling the price of credit or adjusting the quality of borrowing rather than the price of borrowing. And this is the sort of thing that people like um, the post-Keynesian American economist Hyman Minsky advocated for strongly in the 1980s during the rise of money manager capitalism. Um, It's long been an argument within modern monetary theorists and post-Keynesians is that macroprudential policy is a far more effective tool than monetary policy. And in, in Australia, unfortunately, we took that away from the RBA. So we've got sort of a bizarre situation where the three fundamental goals are full employment, jobs for everybody who wants one, low and stable inflation, and a stable financial system. So we don't want major banking failures. Um, We don't want a massive housing bubble. We don't want an explosion in private sector debt. Um, The only entity that really has the, the power to properly deliver on full employment and price stability is the government because it controls fiscal policy. Um, but we've given responsibility for full employment and price stability to a central bank that doesn't have the power to actually deliver on those objectives because monetary policy simply isn't powerful enough. Mm-hmm. And the one tool that the central bank did have that it could actually use really quite effectively and efficiently, which is macroprudential policy, we took that away from them and hand, and and. <laughs> You know, it's sort of, you know, like a babushka doll of stupidity. We've just, you know, we've, we've just passed it on down the line to the smaller and smaller doll until it's landed with APRA. And I think, honestly, um, as much as the RBA deserves a lot of criticism for how they've managed things, especially since the emergence of inflation, it's almost a cliche now. If all you've got is a hammer, then everything looks like a nail. And that's mm. exactly what the RBA has done. They've jacked up interest rates. I was thinking hammers as you were talking. It sounds to me like we've mm. given builders a stove and said, go build a house. And then we've given the chefs like a trumpet and said, go make a meal. And then we've given the musicians yeah. a hammer and said, go make music. <laughs> Crazy. Exactly. You were talking before about fine tuning and I was thinking it's like trying to fine tune a piano with a lump of wood. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> My line is it's like trying to um, um, conduct brain surgery with a sharp pointy rock. (laughs) I'm James Juniper. I'm an economist at the University of Newcastle and you're listening to Radio 3 CR. Now poor old Philip Lowe. Apparently he's been given a pointy rock and told to go do neurosurgery. In other words, uh, the central bank is told to do stuff that it simply can't do. It's a bizarre charter, but like we're saying, this whole concept that uh, people making decisions, politicians and, and policymakers and, and advisors, etc., don't know the origins of money, where it comes from. Mm. 
And so they, they have these bizarre methods for trying to control it that don't work. And it's, uh, again, I'll refer back to the previous treasurer, Peter Costello, talking about this sort of stuff. And he says, mm. well, you know, you need to set yourself up for the next crisis because there will be one. Uh, when the times are good, we should be we should be paying this stuff back. But if we're not doing it now, when we go into the next crisis, and there will be one, there'll be one in a few years' time. When we go into the next crisis, we'll be going in from a much weaker position. <laughs> and, and and you sort of think, well, of course. How it, does he know that? It's kind of kind of like saying, here you go, jump behind behind the wheel of this car. Now I know you don't know how to drive, and you've got no idea. So of course you're going to crash it a few times. I mean, it's, we have to prepare for the accident because it will happen. Because we know we know you can't drive. So <laughs> that's exactly what it's. It like. would be much better if they just learned how to drive. If they understood how. The car works. Yeah, yeah, well, I think Phil Lowe probably knows better, but he's just going around banging people on the head anyway with his pointy rock, or which we would call the rising interest rates. And he's doing that because he thinks he needs to raise interest rates in order to bring down inflation. Yeah, and I, I sometimes wonder whether Philip Lowe sits there, because if you this was your full-time job, all you have to do is sit there and analyse the system, and you've got people around you to, to advise you, etc. I mean, if you and I can figure out the irrationality of the system, he must know that, that the system mm. is insane, that it doesn't work. He needs to come out of his heterodox closet, doesn't he? Yeah, I mean, like, his, his, uh, his job uh, for, the, for the whole time has been Reserve Bank governor since 2016 is to land inflation between two to three percent and he's failed every year Mm -hmm. it's either been too low or too high he's never got it right so he's had years and years to sit there and try and figure out how to land this beast in the right place (laughs) and i do recall before COVID hit when the interest rates were going down and down and the economy was stalling Mm -hmm. and he's lowering interest rates with the expectation that businesses will borrow because uh, money is cheap Mm. and it just wasn't working so inflation was below target it's down you know, one percent and and diving, and nothing's working. Yeah. And he was actually saying fairly bluntly to the government, "You need to do something. <laughs> we need some fiscal policy, otherwise the economy is going to tank." And then guess what happened? Uh, COVID happened. Mm-hmm. COVID forced the government to have to do the spending that Phil Lowe was in code pleading with the treasurer to do. And so, in a funny way, that's how COVID saved us. Yeah. Yeah, so so there's this idea that by raising interest rates at the moment, they're going to bring down inflation. So there's that reverse idea that if inflation is too low, which is what you're talking about, then interest rates must have been too high. So we say poor Phil Lowe because he gets blamed coming and going. But then, of course, Lachlan points out that how could he have gone lower with interest rates because they were already below 1%? They were at, at rock bottom, <laughs> you know. So I reckon Phil Lowe must have some understanding and I reckon he gladly accepts his million dollar plus salary each year because his job is to bullshit the (laughs) Australian public about things that he's doing and pretend that they're going to work. His job is to be the fall guy, isn't it? (laughs) Yeah, and he's, like, he is conservative. He is orthodox. You haven't got a a raging Keynesian economist. You don't think he's a raging, flaming, closeted Keynesian? (laughs) No, you're talking about a very ordinary guy here. And uh, I reckon if he did have an understanding, like you and I do, of how the economy works, his job is to shut up, repeat the orthodoxy, take your paycheck and know that you're going to get sacked by uh, by the Labor government uh, and replaced uh-huh. fairly bloody soon. At some point. Yep. He's got to maintain that facade of the mythical independence of the central bank uh. because supposedly 
If the economic models are saying that at the moment you need to raise interest rates in order to lower inflation, then they reckon that the politicians won't do that because they don't want to hurt the voters. So this is Phil Lowe doing his mythical I'm the independent central bank. <laughs> yeah, yeah. If they wanted to reduce discretionary spending, um, raising interest rates is not going to do that in any targeted measure. Mm-hmm. If you're really uh, serious about uh, attacking discretionary spending, which is a dubious um, presumption to make uh, when it, regarding inflation in the first place, then you would use taxation. You would tax the rich. But then that becomes fiscal policy, not monetary policy. Yeah, let's get back to our conversation with Lachlan. You're listening to 3CR 855 AM on digital and on the internet www.3cr.org.au Pre the pandemic, we had the problem that the the government was keeping fiscal policy too tight with austerity. They kept cutting the deficit while APRA kept lending standards, so macroprudential policy, far too loose. And actually, uh, Phil Lowe, he said, look, we know that there's pressure on us to cut interest rates even further to try and get unemployment down. Now, of course, we don't think that would have been terribly effective. But anyway, he said, I acknowledge that there are those who say we should have cut interest rates um, faster. But we're concerned that cutting interest rates further would lead to an even greater buildup in private sector debt and even more financial system instability. Mm. Yeah, this is why I sort of call him poor old Phil Lowe. Is <laughs> Phil had a, had, a, had a... He was in a no-win, wasn't he? <laughs> he's done, he's done a, he's, yes, he's done a poor job, but actually it was actually Matthias Cormann, who was a finance minister, mm. who crushed the economy with, with austerity, with the, the obsession with budget surpluses, and it was APRA who were being sloppy with credit regulation. If APRA had actually done their job and properly regulated borrowing and lending, the RBA would have been able to cut interest rates further without worrying that that would lead to really risky, unsustainable private sector borrowing. I've been keeping an eye on monetary policy and fiscal policy, but I'd miss this whole thing with macro prudential policy. So I find this really fascinating. It's like an extra uh, layer that we can all look at. There's a, a fascinating report that um, Nathan Tankis, a brilliant young scholar in the United States, he put out a, a report in, I think it was January 2022, called The New Monetary Policy, Reimagining Demand Management in the 21st Century. And essentially, it basically informed everything that we said about macroprudential policy in the ACTU submission to the RBA review. And I think even you know, one footnote, I kind of said the, the polite academic version of saying, just go and read Nathan Tankers's bloody report. Um, <laughs> so APRA actually cut lending standards just prior to the pandemic. So everyone who's sort of out there blaming Phil Lowe for slashing interest rates to, to near zero, allowing people to take on a huge amount of debt during the pandemic. And well, yeah, of course, Phil Lowe made a, a mistake in saying that interest rates probably wouldn't rise until 2024, because that's when he thought wages growth would pick up. But APRA gets off the hook to, mm-hmm. <laughs> to an incredible extent. That, that slashing interest rates to, to near zero would not and should not have caused the colossal buildup in unsustainable household debt that it did during the pandemic if APRA had done their job. And APRA didn't actually tighten lending standards until October 2021. So this thing had been racing away red hot for 18 months. Um, and and I'd, I'd basically dissolve APRA and move all their powers back into the RBA. Now, of course, my former employer, the ACTU, of course, we were much more diplomatic on that point. Mm-hmm. We did certainly part the point that there is, to, to get to your earlier question, and about why we need a macroeconomic coordination committee, mm. is because clearly you've got an example over the last six or so years 
where the three arms of macroeconomic policy, fiscal policy, monetary policy, and macroprudential policy have not been working in coordination. What's an example of loose macroprudential policy? Um, so there's a, a loan serviceability buffer. Let's say interest rates are 1% at the moment. The serviceability buffer might be a regulatory requirement that APRA imposes on the housing market um, that says to a bank, in considering whether or not you will offer a home loan to a prospective buyer, you have to be sure that this prospective homeowner will be able to service their mortgage if interest rates were 4%, let's say. It's essentially um, requiring banks to do the responsible thing. So if you are going to loosen that, they'd only have to be able to pay back at a 3% rate, not a 4% rate. For instance, yes. There has to be a sort of stress test. But there's other requirements like um, uh, how much deposit you put down, you know, whether you need a 5% or no percent or a 10% or 20% deposit. Yeah, those are all examples of macroprudential policy. Hello, I'm Philip Lorne. I'm adjunct professor at Torrance University and you're listening to Radio MMT with Anne and Kev on 3CR Community Radio. You know, I hadn't expected that Lachlan was going to take us into this amazing realm of regulating the banks, this macro prudential policy, but it's kind of fun learning on the job here, Kevin. Yeah, yeah, it's something which I haven't considered, but making sure that your economic institutions mm. are regulated to uh, maintain economic stability, it does seem like a fairly basic sort of thing. Again, this is this is kind of going into uh, more of a government um, area, uh, like an institutional area. Yeah, but it's been farmed out anyway. Mm-hmm. They farmed it out. They they <laughs> they, they said, oh, you know, that's all a bit difficult. We'll, we'll get somebody else to do it, um, uh-huh. and then they don't do the job properly. APRA hasn't been working properly for years. Yeah, the Banking Royal Commission was all due to their lax standards, and their they just weren't doing their job. Mm-hmm. Just let the markets run free and they'll find their natural balance and everybody will get rich. So palming this stuff off to APRA was kind of a sneaky way of doing deregulation. Uh, yeah. What they're doing is they, they say, right here, we'll, we'll get APRA, we'll get another body to look after this stuff. And then typically, especially conservative governments, then defund those uh, organisations so that they don't stand a, a chance in hell of being able to operate properly. Mm-hmm. And the message is sent, listen, you're a tokenistic body just just do some stuff around the periphery. If anybody gets really out of hand, like if we end up having uh, the head of one of the banks involved in a major cocaine importing deal, you should, you should probably let us know about it. But but anything short of that, and, re- and remember, like like there was all this money laundering going through all the banks, and they just got a slap on the wrist for that. Yeah, hand over fist. That was all APRA's responsibility, and they just squibbed it. They just didn't care. So anyway, Lachlan has pointed out to us that there are three pillars of this. Uh, policy when it comes to managing the economy and that's the fiscal policy which is taxing and spending monetary policy which is the price of money or the interest rates and this macro prudential policy and I came across a quote uh, that summed up this trifecta really nicely and it was in a Patreon post by economist Steve Keane and he wrote if we had people in charge of the monetary system who actually understood how money works Then, private debt, not government debt, would be kept low. The deficit fiat, 
which is the government spending, would be kept at a level commensurate with the needs of the private sector for money for commerce and savings and the finance sector would be kept in check. So that's it, regulating the banks. Yeah, everybody always talks about making sure all the commercial sector is is all fine. How about just people? Well, that's the code. So they're talking code, these economists. So the private sector is people, you know, households and businesses, households meaning just you and I. And money for commerce and savings, the savings part is can we give people financial buffers so they're not stressing out? There's, There's a lot of people stressing out these days. And I do want to point out too that it's not that we don't want commercial banks or private banks to lend. We actually really need them to lend because they supposedly have their ear to the ground and understand where we need to put money in order to make stuff happen. Uh, But the problem is that the neoliberals have convinced us that we need to deregulate the banks. And that means that we've basically just handed over the power to create credit to the private banks without properly monitoring them, which I have heard MMT people say, this is like arming a bunch of mercenaries with AK-47s without bothering to ensure whose side they're fighting on. Right, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, because it is a huge power in the economy to create credit. In other words, for the banks to make loans that are denominated in the currency and that look like the currency to you and me. Yeah, it it, it does make me wonder what's the point of anything sometimes (laughs) and all this conversation. Like like we we sit here and we just go, everything is just ridiculous. There's no solution in, in sight. So what's the point of anything? And I guess this comes to the essence of this show, which is the point is if enough people understand how the system works, maybe we can pressure these bastards to start Mm. operating in some sort of responsible fashion. Thank you for reminding us of what the point is. Totally. Mm. Yeah, because well, it can it can get a little bit overwhelming. And mm. why do I need to know this? Yeah. Why do we need to know all this detail? I mean, well, if your rent's going up and you're having trouble paying for food, this is why you need to know. There's two there's two options you got in a situation where you have um, the world going to hell in a handbasket, like at the moment. You can change it from within, or you can change it from externally, endogenously, or exogenously. <laughs> yes, exactly right. You can do it exogenously or endogenously, oh, right? So Kevin has the exogenous theory of how to change things. <laughs> yeah, so if you're going to change it from, from the outside, you're talking about revolution. You're talking about an external uh, force coming in and taking over the uh, system. Invariably, it's done by force. And when you have things being changed by force, you end up with all these violent bastards in charge of the system and, and, and the cycle repeats itself. So I guess what we're trying to to do on this show is inform people from within so Mm. that they can make informed decisions and that they can change the culture by telling their elected representatives Mm -hmm. to pull their finger out and understand how the bloody system works. It shouldn't (laughs) be that bloody difficult. Well, speaking of elected representatives, uh, Lachlan did mention Matthias Cormann there. Yeah. And he was a senator in the Liberal Party in Western Australia for a while. And he is now the Secretary General of the OECD. I know. I reckon he just got it because of his uh, his accent. <laughs> <laughs> he kind of sounds universal. He's got this European accent. He, he speaks very well. But he's... So he wrecked havoc in Australia. And now we've sent him off to the Organisation for Economic Cooperation and Development. Interestingly, he's had to pull his head in a lot because he was quite outspoken about doing nothing on climate change, etc. 
and uh, now that he's in this worldwide organization that takes things uh, like that far more seriously mm. he's had to do a big 180 on a lot of his previous views and surprisingly I hope he's getting paid enough to do that <laughs> mm. <Yeah. laughs> alright Kevin you and I we are running out of time thank you for spending the past hour with us uh, we will be back with more of Lachlan and we'll take a closer look at the trade unions and the job guarantee. He speaks well, Lachlan. Uh, it's a joy and a pleasure listening to him. And uh, the next show, we're talking about the job guarantee and other such matters. See you then, Kevin. Bye. You've been listening to Radio MMT with Anne and Kev. We'd love your feedback. Email us on radiommt at gmail.com or search Radio MMT on social media. Listen to this show anytime, wherever you get your podcasts or on 3cr.org.au forward slash Radio MMT. Support this show and the station by subscribing to 3cr.org.au and mention Radio MMT. We thank all our guests and we thank economist Professor Bill Mitchell and his mmted.org, educating masses on modern monetary theory. And thank you to our listening listeners for listening. And I thank you, Kevin. And I thank you, Anne. So what's planned for next week? Kevin, there is still so much to talk about. We've got to expose all this rotten economics. Well, yeah, yeah, no, that's, that's good, and I get it. Do you reckon we could use a bit more music? Well, I made a list of all these terrible economic theories. Like, have you heard of the theory of comparative advantage or the quantity theory of money or the loanable funds theory? Have you heard of a band called Single Gun Theory? Like, they're a really good band. <laughs> I'm sure there's a whole range of, like, macroeconomic music that I could bring into the show. Yeah, yeah, but we really need to do marginal productivity theory, not to mention the natural rate of unemployment and the money multiplier. You've got a pretty good singing voice. I play bass. <laughs> Bill, Bill, he plays guitar. I reckon we could form a macroeconomic band. Like, we could deliver this whole message by music. Well, we could call the band the Permanent Income Hypothesis or the Ricardian Equivalent or Rational Expectations. I think we're onto something here. We're trying to make macroeconomics more interesting to the masses. We're going to, like, form this band and sing it to them. And we're going to, we're going to bring the economists in. We're going to get musical. We're going to do the regression theory of money to music. That would work. That's good. <laughs> regression theory of money. What runs with regression? Regression, suppression, <laughs> instant. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.